0: come this Lord's Day to continue in our study, the God of all comforts. I believe it's the 27th installment of this series. God comforts us by the oath He made to Christ, appointing Him our high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Christ had said to God in olden times, I delight to do Thy will. That is, Christ delighted to come in human flesh to sacrifice Himself to take away our sin and to shut down the animal sacrifices that God took no delight in. In Psalm 16, the Spirit of Christ expressed His perfect obedience to God's will and His happiness that God had sworn to Him that He would not rot in the grave after He died, but would be raised up quickly from the dead. The promise God made to Christ regarding His resurrection allowed Christ to rest in hope in His flesh even while He died for us. In His humanity, Christ expresses the fullness of His joy to be in the presence of God for all eternity to come. At the cross, when Jesus cried out that God had forsaken Him in judgment and wrath, He was embracing as His own testimony Psalm 22. That psalm begins describing the cruelty and horror of His crucifixion and how wicked men abused Messiah at Calvary. It describes in sometimes gory detail the sorrows of Christ as he bore our sins in his own body. But the psalm turns abruptly at verse 22 when he begins to describe his victory and his vindication by God himself. It turned out that even though Christ was forsaken by God, that didn't mean that God was oblivious to his sufferings. Not at all. In fact, God's forsaking of Christ refers to God's pouring out His wrath on Jesus for our crimes laid upon Him and not delivering Him from them. Until, that is, God raised Christ up in power and glory. The Spirit of Christ is very clear. He was to be forsaken by God in wrath and judgment, but not because God despised Him, or treated his sufferings with contempt. To the contrary, Christ declares that God had not despised his affliction, had indeed heard him when he cried out. Christ's death was not, after all, in vain. Rather, God is satisfied with his dying for our sins, and God delights in the sacrifice that Jesus made for us on the cross. God is not satisfied with animal sacrifices, but God is most certainly satisfied with the sacrifice of Jesus. It delighted God when Christ did that, what Christ did there. Indeed, the delight of God metastasizes through Christ into the hearts of all His redeemed people. In the last verse of Psalm 22, Christ promises that people would preach what happened to Him at that time. They would declare it to people that hadn't even been born at that time that it is the righteousness of God for poor sinners they would declare that God had done this for us. It is astonishing to us after all these centuries that God has done this by Jesus Christ for us. Finally, in Zephaniah 3, God's utter delight in saving His people is described for us. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in His love. He will joy over thee with singing. It is an astonishing thing to be told that our great God, infinite, eternal, all-powerful, all-holy and righteous, nevertheless exalts to save His people and sings over us in His love. No wonder God delights in the sacrifice of Jesus. No wonder Christ delights to do God's will because God delights in saving His people. He rejoices over us. He sings over us. He rests in His love for us. None of that could have ever happened so long as the only sacrifices were animal sacrifices in which God took no delight. The everlasting priesthood of Christ is not only toward us as Christ helps us and sympathizes with us and intercedes for us and dies for us. No, His priesthood is also toward God for us. Our high priest takes perfect care to satisfy and delight God for us. Therefore, God's delight in us is fulfilled and perfected by Christ so that we are comforted by God's oath to Christ regarding His everlasting priesthood. Now, we read again for review a portion of Hebrews chapter 10. It is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Wherefore, when he cometh into this world, he saith, that as Christ saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldst not but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. Now Hebrews expresses the will of God that Old Testament animal sacrifices be done away with because they can never save and that the sacrifice of Christ be made one time for the saving of the Lord's people. So the will of God, which Christ delights in, is to get rid of the animal sacrifices, which are not delightful, and to replace them with the one-time sacrifice of Jesus as our high priest, which sacrifice takes away sin and purchases our redemption forever. Now, Christ expresses his desire to do God's will himself in his ministry. In John chapter 4 is the famous story of the woman at the well and Jesus' disciples left him there to rest while they went into the town to get food. And as he was resting, she comes along and he asks her for a drink of water. And then he begins to tell her that if she knew who he was, she would be asking him for water. She said, how are you going to give me any water? You don't even have a jug to draw from. He says, well, the water I give you is spiritual. It's a fountain of water. It causes you never to thirst again. Of course, he's speaking of salvation. On the inside, through the Holy Spirit. She, of course, originally confuses that with literal drinking water. Just like in John 6, the people confuse the living bread with regular bread, which they were keen to get because then they wouldn't have to farm or raise any wheat or run any meals or anything. They could just slice off a piece and eat, and eat, and eat, and eat for free. What else could people want but free food from their king? But Christ was speaking of the spiritual bread of life, which He is, which His body and blood are the spiritual bread of life, by which if a man eat, he shall never die unto everlasting life. So this woman, he discourses with her and witnesses the gospel to her. She comes to believe that He is Messiah. She goes and tells her friends. And then at verse 31, we read these words. In the meanwhile, His disciples prayed Him saying, Master, eat. But He said unto them, I have meat to eat that ye know not of. Therefore said the disciples one to another, Hath any man brought him aught to eat? See, they're always making this mistake of confusing Christ's reference to spiritual food with temporal food. Verse 34, Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of Him that sent me, and to finish His work. So you see here Christ expresses the same thing, the same idea which is expressed in Psalm 40 by the Spirit of Christ, centuries before He came. And in Hebrews 10, that expression of His delight to do the will of His Father Doing God's will, you see, was nourishment to Christ. It strengthened him. It pushed him forward. Doing God's will, fulfilling God's will, was like meat and drink to him. It energized him. It got him in the frame of mind to continue on with the work. And that's why he was always fasting and praying and why he was not that concerned about his own Physical needs. He did hunger. The scriptures tell us that Christ had a real human body that grew hungry and grew thirsty and grew sleepy. But he's making the broader point to his disciples as if to explain to them why it was he was forgetful to eat the food they had gone into town to purchase. Why? Because he had meat to eat they knew not of. What was it? It was to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. He fed upon doing the will of His Father and drew strength from it. And so I'm sure it could be said, should we? It should be energizing to us to consciously obey God and to do His will and to seek to accomplish what purpose He has given to us to accomplish. But during His ministry, you see, Jesus explained explicitly what was the will of His Father that He would surely accomplish. So here He says that there is a will of His Father which He is eager to accomplish in John 4. And then in John 6, He gives a statement, an explicit statement of the will of His Father. Now, in many places He makes statements to the effect that doing all the miracles, preaching righteousness to the people, Preaching the gospel to the people, doing good deeds of miraculous power for the people, that all of that was fulfilling the will of his father. It was all stuff that his father had told him to do. But in John chapter 6, you get a very particular statement of what the will of his father was that he will surely accomplish. Surely accomplish. You know, we have all sorts of plans and schemes. I'm planning on doing this and that and these and those. And people tell us what they're planning on doing. But the will of God which Christ has contracted or promised to accomplish is much more concrete and much more certain. It is ultimately certain, unlike anything that we may say or do. It was for that purpose that Christ came in the first place to accomplish the will of His Father. In John 6 at verse 37, we know the text well. Christ states the will of the Father this way. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me I should lose nothing but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of Him that sent me, that every one which seeth the Son and believeth on Him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now this is a startling statement of the will of God, isn't it? It's a promise that because God has willed the Lord Jesus to do these things, therefore He certainly will accomplish it without fail And it's the everlasting salvation of all the people that God gave to Christ to save. If someone gives us a people or animals to save, we may try our best, but we'll always lose some of them, won't we? In fact, the tragedy of the medical profession is that in the end, they lose all their patients, don't they? Sooner or later, we all die. And my daddy liked to tell the story of the lady that came in who he exhorted should stop eating so much because she was overweight, to which she responded, Well, doctor, you know, we're all going to die of something, and it sure would be a shame to die hungry. So that was her take on overeating. But even if she ate perfectly, she would die someday, wouldn't she? It's just that her last days would be more miserable, according to her calculation. Then if she ate what she wanted and died anyway. We rejoice whenever a temporal Savior manages to save the people that are in His care. And we sorrow whenever we see examples where the temporal hero loses the lives of the people that he set out to save. But you see, with Christ, it's different, isn't it? He never loses a single one of the people that God gave him to save, does he? Not one. You know, we we live in a time when we have a religion, a Christianity that says that, that Christ is wringing His hands because of all the people that won't trust in Him that He's losing. But you see here it says that He's going to accomplish the will of His Father to save all the people that the Father has given to Him. Not only that, they'll all come to Him, it says. And when they come to Him, He'll not cast them out. And He'll accomplish the will of His Father. That of all which He hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is not hyperbolic talk. This is firm, laid in concrete promise by the Lord Jesus. The will of the Father is that everyone that sees the Son and believes on Him may have everlasting life and I will raise Him up at the last day. So notice that Christ's purpose here is He came down from heaven A, not to do my own will, but B, to do the will of Him that sent me. Here's a submission of Christ in His humanity to the will of His Father, to the will of God, that He should do the work which God had sent Him to do and not to do, whatever it is that He might want to do. And this is seen, you see, in the prayer in agony in the Garden of Gethsemane where Christ says, Not My will, but Thine be done. Cried the Son to the Father above as He knelt beneath the old olive tree, as the old hymn puts it, that He came to do not His will, but the will of Him that sent Me. And this is what Jesus says here that He came to do the Father's will, not the will of Him that sent me. Now you see, we would like to substitute our will for the Father's will in so many places. So we want to order Jesus around and claim that we're informing Him of what the Father's will is when in fact He knows better than we do. We know almost nothing, do we? The Lord Jesus is the Son of God. He certainly knows the Father's will better than any of us do. And He's come to do that will And the will is that He lose nothing that's given to Him, no people that are given to Him, but raise them up. And that everyone that sees and believes on Jesus will have everlasting life. Well, that's a tall order, isn't it? We can't tell anybody that it's our will that they should give somebody eternal life. We don't have the power, and they don't either. But the Lord Jesus does. Think about how these two explanations of God's will that Christ delights in are in fact the same will. That is the will of God that Christ delights in in Hebrews 10 and Psalm 40 are in fact the same will which Christ articulates in John chapter 6 that of all that God has given to Him He should lose nothing but raise it up at the last day. Hebrews and Psalm 40 state God's will is that Christ replace animal sacrifices with His own perfect offering for sinners. That's the will that's described and articulated in Hebrews 10 and in Psalm 40. That's the will which Christ will certainly, has certainly, come to fulfill and has fulfilled. That the sacrifice would be made by Christ and the animal sacrifices would be overthrown. Because God did not delight in the animal sacrifices, but He delights in the sacrifice of the one that delights to do His will. And then in John 6, the will described is that Christ lose none of those that God has given to Him, but rather raise them up unto everlasting life. One explanation describes the demanded outcome, you see, in John chapter 6, the demanded outcome, that Christ not lose a single one of the people that God has given Him to raise into everlasting life. And the other explanation of the will of God provides the required means by which Christ should lose none of His people. That is, that the animal sacrifices should be overthrown and he should make a perfect offering for sin for the saving of his people. They are, in fact, one and the same will, but the expression is, in the one case, of the means by which the will will be accomplished. The other, the end, that accomplishment of the will, will ultimately come to pass. If Christ was to fulfill the will of John 6 to save everyone given him by God, then he must delight to do the will expressed in Hebrews 10 that he sacrifice himself as God's lamb and shut down the Old Testament animal sacrifices that could never save anyone. Now, this is in marked contrast to the way we operate in our world. Because we like to have our cake and eat it too. And I thought about that idiom and wondered how it translates into other languages. Americans have so many idioms that if you think about them very long, the more you think, the worse they, the worse they sit with you. We want the excellent consequence without the painful cost. And this is what's driving our society down the road to perdition. Society says, live and act like you want. You're entitled to live and act like you want, and you're then entitled to demand the outcome that requires hard work and sacrifice, which you didn't do. As if they aren't connected to each other at all. My illustration is, you remember an old child's busy box? Had a bunch of dials and knobs that clicked when you turned them, and sliders that made funny noises and... Rubber horns that when you pressed them, they made funny beeping sounds. And the idea was that a toddler or an infant could sit there and amuse himself by operating all of these controls, which had a visual and auditory effect, but which didn't accomplish anything. But sadly, in our country and all over the world, really, we've taken the busy box and installed it as the explanation for how we think the world ought to operate. And that is. I should be able to turn this knob to get what I want, and it shouldn't have any effect on any of the other inputs and outputs in my life. And I should be able to punch that button over there, and it should perform some salutary outcome, and it shouldn't have any connection with what I want to happen over here. So we think the government can print money so we can buy the stuff we want, but it won't raise prices on anything, will it? or that we can pass laws that restrict this, that, or the other activity, but it won't result in any shortages anywhere else, will it? Because we decouple everything from everything so that we can do what we want and not do what we don't want and still get everything that we want and none of the stuff that we don't want. That's the way we operate. You see, the problem there is that in the real world, that's not the way things work at all. No doubt the disciples hadn't a clue about the will of God, especially as expressed in Hebrews. But they certainly desired the will as expressed in John 6, didn't they? They thought it would be keen if Jesus could save His people, which, of course, they numbered themselves among them, and all of them were, except for Judas, who was set to betray the Savior. They wanted the salvation. They wanted the everlasting life. That fit in with their view of Messiah. They desired the will of John 6, but without Christ making Himself an offering or anything drastic like that, surely we can have the one without the other. And Jesus didn't even bother except on a few occasions to explain to them that it would require a sacrifice of Himself on the cross in order that He might save His people from their sin. Everybody wants to get saved from their sin, but nobody wants there to be any cost paid by anyone to do so. No doubt the disciples wanted everlasting life from Christ and to keep the Old Testament sacrificial system and to be saved from the wrath to come. But the problem, of course, then, is then what's the point of Jesus at all? What do we need Him for? Where does He even fit in? If the two wills of Christ, if the two wills of God shown in Hebrews 10 and in John 6 are not one and the same wills, then they become decoupled from each other. And the salvation that Christ promises as the will of His Father unto all who the Father has given Him, what does it have to do with Christ delighting to do the will of His Father and overturn the animal offerings and make a sacrifice that God is well pleased with. We even have false teachers who preach false gospels who think that the will of John 6 is decoupled from that of Hebrews 10. That they have nothing to do with each other. And that we don't need Christ as a sacrifice for our sins. God can forgive our sins just whenever He wants to. He doesn't need an offering for sin. He does not have to meet His promise that death is the judgment for sin and that it will be wrecked upon the sinner. I just think God can just dismiss that promise with a wave of His hand and a laugh. And so they don't see any connection between the will of God in John 6 and the will of God that Christ delights in in Hebrews chapter 10. While they don't need Christ as a sacrifice for sin, God can just save us from sin and death because He loves us. There is no substitute in the judgment for our sin that is necessary. And therefore, there is no need that Christ delight to do the will of His Father to be made a sacrifice to take away our sins and to dismiss the old animal sacrifices that could never save. But God declares the end, you see, which is the salvation of His people who He's given to Christ, from the means that is the sacrifice of Jesus, our high priest, for us. Both of these statements of the will of God, which Christ delights to perform, are related to each other are really identical to each other. They're just expressions of the consequence and the cause. These are indeed the will of God that Christ delighted to do. We cannot have the one without the other. Hebrews makes the point that not only so, we can't have the salvation of God's people, which God has declared is His will, if we're still going to trust in the animal sacrifices. They have to be taken away by the sacrifice of Jesus. They have to be displaced by it. And that's the problem that the Jewish believers were wrestling with. But we like the temple order and the temple rituals, and we like our ethnic and religious and national ways of doing things, our tradition. We're comfortable with them. So why do we need Christ anymore? And the writer of Hebrews is explaining to them that without Christ, there's no salvation. There's just ineffectual animal sacrifices that are not capable of washing away the sin of the people. When Jesus satisfied the will of God in dying to save us from our sins, he had in mind particularly the very same people that God had given him to sacrifice to save according to his will. Just like Christ fulfills God's will to save all those given to him by the Father, so too Christ fulfills God's will to offer up himself in the place of those same people to accomplish God's will as to the sacrifice. Christ's sacrifice never fails to save those he had in mind to ransom from their sin, so that He might fulfill the will of His Father that He lose not a one of the people that God had given Him, but raise them up at the last day. If you have trusted in Jesus' sacrifice for your salvation, then you have filled up a part of the delight of Jesus in delivering you and saving you. The other text we read from the Gospels this morning, Luke 10 at verse 17. That story of when the disciples came back from preaching the gospel and they were all fixated with how wonderful it was that the demons obeyed them. They were able to heal people. And what does Jesus say? Notwithstanding in this rejoice, not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. He puts his finger on the key point of our rejoicing, that our names are written in heaven. We're amongst the people that God has given to Christ and has expressed His will that He not lose a single one. And then look at this. At that hour, Jesus rejoiced in spirit and said, I thank Thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that Thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, hast revealed them unto babes, even so, Father, for so it seemed good in Thy sight. Here's an example of the Lord Jesus delighting in the will of His Father that the gospel should have been revealed to the helpless, the ignorant, the inarticulate, the little people, not the wise and prudent people, not the scholars, you know, not the religious rulers, not the scribes and the Pharisees. The Lord Jesus gives thanks to God. He rejoices that you've hidden the gospel from the wise and prudent. And you've revealed it unto these babes. And why is this? Even so, for it seemed good in thy sight. You see, here's a precious example of how the Lord Jesus delighted in the will of the Father. And notice the reason He gives is because it's what you wanted to do. It made you happy. It pleased you. It was good in your sight. That's good enough for me. And it ought to be good enough for all of us, shouldn't it? That who God has revealed the Lord Jesus and His gospel to may not be the beautiful people or the rich people or the powerful people or the knowledgeable people or the people with all the advanced fancy degrees. But whoever it is, if they be babes, then it's a good thing because it delighted God to do it that way and not some other way. And then he says at verse 23, he turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things which ye see. Now this is not Christ congratulating them on having such sharp vision or good eyes. No, he's saying that you've been blessed by God that you should see these things. Because by all rights, you shouldn't have seen any of them. Only the wise and the prudent should have seen them if we're going to go based on the way the world thinks things work. But no, it was God's will that you should see them, and therefore God has blessed you. And then he says, For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see those things which ye see and have not seen them, and to hear those things which ye hear and have not heard them. He's talking about the saints that went before. And some of them were very important people, kings and prophets. And they knew there was something there they were missing and wanted to see. But it was not the time nor the place according to the will of God and His good pleasure that they should understand and see those things. But now it is according to the good pleasure and the delightsome will of God that the Lord's people should see these things. And it's a blessing that we've been given by God that we should see them. He revealed it unto babes. No credit belongs to the believers at all, does it? It's not because we're more humble or we're more thoughtful or more uh, in tune with the things of God. None of that at all. It's because the Lord delighted to reveal those things to the unfit ones would be another way to put it. God chose to whom He would reveal Christ the same people that God gave to Christ to save in the first place. Now, one thing in closing we should note is that the people who lived in the ministry of Christ heard what the will of God was and some of them believed it and embraced it because Christ told them that was what God had purposed for him to do, was to save the people that God gave to Christ. And raise them up at the last day. But you see, almost none of them understood what the cost would be of Christ's delight in this will of his Father to save his people. What will the cost be? Who can say? How can we know? Well, it had been foretold in olden times, and we've gone over those many, many times. But now we do know what the cost was, wasn't it? You see, the cost of Christ delighting in the will of God as articulated in John 6 that He should save every single person whom the Father gave to Him and lose not a single one. That cost is the cost articulated in the will of God that Christ delighted in in Hebrews 10 that He should be made a sacrifice a living sacrifice put to death in a bloody way for the saving of His people and do away with the useless animal sacrifices that could never save. We know now the cost of the will of God that Christ delighted in. In fact, we celebrate it around the Lord's table, don't we? We celebrate that Christ was willing to do this for us, but willing to do this because He delighted in the will of God. And He would obey the Father's commandments. And He would accomplish the work and finish the job. And work out an everlasting salvation for all the people who come to Him whom God has given to Him. And this is why, you see, while the disciples probably didn't detect the priesthood of Christ, we can. Because the cost is all on the side of the priesthood, isn't it? It's one thing to go around announcing glorious salvation and people agreeing that it would be a good thing. It's another thing entirely to describe the cost of the salvation, the tragedy of the cost, the suffering of the cost to Jesus on the cross. And then people will roach up. And they'll say it's not fair, that God shouldn't have done that to him. And besides that, their sin isn't that bad anyway, and they don't need a sacrifice and so forth and so on. But we see, has been revealed to us because we're babes, what was the promise and what was the method or the price which Christ would pay. And that is why, since it is an exercise of his priesthood, which God swore to him with an oath he would receive, that is why we are comforted so greatly by the oath that God made to Christ that he would be our priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And He left us like Melchizedek did this bread and this wine. You remember that's what Melchizedek gave to Abraham. Offered him bread and wine. And here the Lord Jesus has given us bread and wine as a symbol, as a picture of His body and blood that accomplished the delightful will of God to take away sin and to overthrow animal offerings and also accomplished that delightful will of God that Christ should lose not a one of the people that God had given to Him to save. Well, let's give thanks for the Lord's table and rejoice in what it pictures for us and what it reminds us of and how we are to celebrate it for all of time to come. Let's give thanks first for the bread that pictures the body of Christ broken for us. O oh God, our Father, we rejoice that Your Son came and was obedient Delighted to do Your will. To do that statement of the will that was both the statement of glorious redemption and also the statement of Your will that was the horrible offering for sin that would take away our sin. We thank You for the body that You clothed Him in at the incarnation, that He might have a body in which to suffer and die in the place of His people. And that You've received it and accepted it as is shown by the fact that He rose again from the grave. You raised Him again from the grave to show that His sacrifice had done the work for which it was proposed and accomplished. Thank You for this bread that He left us. May we understand what it pictures for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Scriptures tell us on the night that our Lord was betrayed, He took the bread and He blessed it and He broke it. And He said, take and eat. This is My body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. I'd like to ask my father if he'd give thanks for the cup that pictures the blood of the Lord Jesus shed for an atonement for our sin. And the Scriptures tell us that after they had supped, He took the cup and He blessed it and He said, drink ye all of it. This cup is the new covenant in My blood for the remission of sin. Do it as often as ye do it in remembrance of me. And the Scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach the Lord's death until He comes. Let's stand and sing number 70 in the black book. Jesus, thou alone art worthy, ceaseless praises to receive. For thy love and grace and goodness rise o'er all our thoughts conceive, with adoring hearts we render honor to thy precious name overflowing with thy mercies far and wide thy worth proclaim number 70